Well, good morning, Grace Fellowship. Uh, we are going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning, and so if you have a Bible or an app, you can find us there. Uh, and yes, I'm not Peter Kroll. Uh, unfortunately, Peter is feeling ill and called me and others this morning saying, hey, can you preach? So uh, I figure if you're going to be uh, get a last minute invite to preach on Easter Sunday, you say yes to that. So uh, yeah, uh, my name is Tom Hallman, and my family, uh, for those of you who don't know me, I'm actually the, the executive pastor here at Grace Fellowship, but uh, my family's been away for most of the past year, and uh, we've been on a, a sabbatical. So uh, there are some of you here uh, who are, this is like your first time visiting, and you don't know me, and that's why. And there's others, you've been coming here for most of the past year, and you don't know me, and that's why. So uh, I figured if you're going to preach on an Easter Sunday, that's a great way to get to know somebody, right? So let's talk about that. Christianity has been around now for about 2,000 years. And uh, while, that ha- while it has become increasingly unpopular, kind of out of favor here in the West, it continues to thrive and multiply in many places around the world. Uh, in fact, Christianity is growing right now at twice the rate of population growth in Asia. And it is projected that the number of Christians in sub-Saharan Africa will double by 2050. That's truly incredible growth. And that growth is incredibly frustrating to anyone who believes that Christianity is false or unhealthy or simply opposed to our own preferred worldview. Well, should there be any such opponents to Christianity in this room right now? First of all, welcome. And second of all... I have, uh, I have a message for you this morning. Pay attention because I'm going to tell you this morning that if you want to completely eradicate biblical Christianity from the face of the earth and to do so while heaping the most possible shame and embarrassment on those very annoying Christians, you only need to do one thing. And that is to disprove the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus was not raised from the dead, then Christianity loses absolutely all of its power and influence. And the Bible itself will tell you uh, and agree with you that in that case, Christians are liars and that they are hopeless and that they are of all people most to be pitied. Now, that being said, we have to keep in mind that the blade does in fact cut both ways. Because if Jesus was raised from the dead, that that instead proves the authority and truthfulness of all that Jesus said and did. And that means that every one of us, Christian and non-Christian alike, has to reckon with that reality and its implications, which which are both numerous and far-reaching. It speaks to things like whether God exists and whether he is who he says he is. Speaks to whether Jesus is who he says he is. It speaks to the reliability of Jesus' teachings and of the Bible itself. It speaks to whether miracles are possible and whether there are supernatural events that natural laws simply cannot explain. It answers the question of whether we are answerable to a divine authority and whether we are God's friends or enemies. And frankly, even if our lives have any meaning whatsoever. And we could go into all the implications of the resurrection on on any number of topics from morality and society and sociology and psychology and criminology and, and whatever you guys are all studying here at Penn State and stuff. And we can talk about economics and medicine and and basically 
whatever it is that you're thinking about, dreaming about, doing vocationally, whatever. The resurrection has implications for all of it. And so, for Christians and non-Christians alike, the, the, the issue of whether the resurrection of Jesus Christ happened or not is a huge question that everyone must contend with. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. I'm going to answer four questions. These would be on your outline, but they're not. So feel free to cross out all that wonderful stuff that I'm sure Peter will give us at some future point, And you can write in a few questions here. There'll be four of them. Here they are. Did the resurrection happen? These will be on the screen too, so you don't have to get them all. Did the resurrection happen? Why does the resurrection matter? What is the resurrection like? And how should this affect us today? That's what we're going to do this morning. This is all taken, not from my own head, but this is from the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So here we go with question one. Did the resurrection happen? And we're going to jump right in near the end of this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, which, by the way, was not a particularly healthy church. There was infighting, factions, immorality, lawsuits, and other pretty messed up stuff happening in that church. And one of those messed up things is that some of those church members were starting to deny the resurrection was even possible. And that's frankly very understandable. Because resurrection is not something that we see every day. Or really any day. I don't have any resurrected friends. You don't have any resurrected friends. And that Corinthian church did not have any resurrected friends. And, and so that, that, that makes resurrection hard to believe. And hard to believe things easily become unbelieved things. And the next thing you know, there's a bunch of Corinthians back then or college professors today or whatever who say Christianity is just fine without the resurrection. Why do you have to muddle it up with all that resurrection nonsense? Just Live it out. To which the Apostle Paul says, no, Christianity is absolutely not fine without the resurrection. But I'll let Paul speak for himself here. So, 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 1, I'm going to read the first 11 verses. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed. Paul starts off here by, by saying that, that he needs to remind the church of what they should already know. This thing called the gospel. A word which means good news. So what is this good news? Paul lays it out for us here in, in a couple 
uh, points found in verses 3 and 4. First, he says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And second, Christ was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, if you're new to Christianity, then you might not recognize 80% of the words I just said. And, and so that's understandable. Let me lay it out for you. Let me describe a little bit of what he's talking about. According to the Bible, God created man and woman perfectly in his image, but he gave them free will to choose to obey or disobey him. And it wasn't long before, just like my children, they chose to disobey. Continues on. The Bible calls that disobedience sin. Through that choice, all of God's creation became corrupted by sin and death entered into the world. But worst of all, that man and that woman's sin created this massive gap in their relationship between, between sinful mankind and a sinless God. However, God, because of his great love for us, because of his great mercy toward us, though while we were his enemies and we were sinful and we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins, he chose to send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die for our sin. That's what happened on Good Friday a couple days ago. That's what we celebrate then. And, and Jesus was crucified in our place 2,000 years ago, but three days later, on Sunday morning, God raised him from the dead, which is what Christianity, when Christians simply call the resurrection. So for all those who by faith trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, as their King, as, as the most important and central person in their life, they are united to him so completely that he takes on and he, and he covers over and he forgives all of our sin while we take on and receive all of his perfections. And we are likewise promised that we, like him, will also one day rise from the dead. Wow. That's some good news, and that's why Christians talk about it so much. That's the gospel. That's the good news. So now Paul, having reminded the Corinthians of the role that the resurrection plays in that gospel message, he goes to great lengths here to show that even though his audience may not have witnessed the resurrection firsthand, that there are literally hundreds of people who did. So Paul lists them out here. He challenges us. He challenges his readers. He says, okay, you don't think the resurrection happened? Fine, go talk to these people. You can actually, like, they didn't have phones, but you could just go visit them. Like, they're alive. He names names. They'll tell you. Just ask them. And so he gives this list. Look at this list. Verse verse 5 there. He mentions Cephas. That's another name for Peter. This is, this is Jesus' right-hand man. He'd have known if it actually wasn't Jesus who came back, right? So some of you know my wife, Allie. She was up here singing. She's about this tall. And uh, she has... A twin sister, identical twin sister. We have a picture of, of, of her sister, Katie, hanging in our house. And a lot of times people look at it and they're thinking, oh, that's just a picture of Allie there. And Allie's like, that's not me. You, you, you can hardly tell. But guess who can tell? Me. I look at Allie's face all the time. She's gorgeous. And her sister, by, by proxy, is pretty too. But like, I can tell the difference. Because I spend so much time with her. And so if, if I can tell a twin apart, do you think Cephas could have been like, I know this guy's claiming to be the resurrected Jesus. That, that ain't him. <laughs> he would know that. Similarly, he would know if it was. And he wholeheartedly believed it. 
And so you can toss out any of those ridiculous hypost, uh, uh, um, imposter hypotheses that it, that it wasn't Jesus who actually raised from the dead, it was someone else and they just thought it was him. No, that makes no sense. So then in verse 6, Paul says that there were 500 people at one time. All right, listen, if someone came in here right now and said, hey guys, Elon Musk is over there in the fellowship hall. We'd probably be like, dude, just sit down. Just listen to the message. But if like, what if then a second person came in and said, seriously, guys, Elon Musk is over there in the fellowship hall. Like, probably, you know, Boyd would get up and be like, let me go check this out. And, and we, we just get some confirmation. What if 500 people came into this room? I don't think we'd fit 500. What if they piled in and every one of them was like, he's in there. He's got a Tesla. Like, what? You guys would all stop listening to me, even if I'm in the middle of this sermon, and you'd go look. Because that's an incredible thing, and you, you wouldn't believe it. But there wouldn't be any doubt with that many witnesses that, of course, that's him. How could anyone then question the word of 500 witnesses of the resurrected Jesus? Okay, so then... Paul mentions James in verse 7. That's Jesus' own blood brother, who it's worth noting, absolutely did not believe in Jesus when he began his ministry. What changed his mind? How about rising from the dead? That'll do it. That'll probably do it. And similarly, the resurrected Jesus, it says, even appeared to Paul himself. We learn in the book of Acts that this guy, Paul, was going around killing Christians and dragging off their families to prison. And he did so much damage to that fledgling church that when he finally encountered the resurrected Jesus and he talked to them and he believed in him, that the church that had formed by that time was terrified of him and they wouldn't let him in. And that's totally understandable because done, like some of these people's families were in prison right now because Paul had put them there. That's not the type of person you have over for Easter dinner, you know? And Paul agrees with that. That's why he declares here in verse 9 that he's the least of this band of missionaries and not even worthy to be considered as part of this Jesus movement thing. So friends, did the resurrection happen? Yes, it absolutely did. And Paul is so confident of it here that he gave a massive list of witnesses to speak with so that any doubters could go and check for themselves. Now, before we move on, to the next point. Let me, let me briefly mention just two objections to the resurrection because these are the ones that I've heard the most. And honestly, I used to believe before I was a Christian, I believed these. And so maybe you've heard these objections or maybe you believe them right now yourself. So let me address them. Number one, maybe the resurrection is all made up. Maybe it's, maybe it's a mass conspiracy propagated by Jesus's followers in order to secure power. Okay. Well, if that were true, then we must in turn ask, what power, what power did they have? Nearly all of Jesus's original followers were imprisoned or exiled or executed. And if they were trying to win power and respect, they did a pretty terrible job. Just read the New Testament. Jesus' disciples were constantly made out to be a bunch of bungling, self-centered, faithless nobodies. If their goal had been power, they did nearly everything completely backwards. So, no, I'm sorry. The conspiracy of power theory simply does not make any sense. Objection number two. Maybe they wholeheartedly believed it. Their faith was sincere, but they were deceived. 
They were deceived. Like, but, well, this again makes no sense. There were literally hundreds of witnesses on over 12 different occasions in a variety of settings uh, over, over a period of 40 days. They, he was seen by men and women inside and outside in large and small groups walking and talking with him. Some people touched him and others watched him eat real actual food. How could all of them be deceived? And frankly, if this were some kind of deception, why didn't the Jewish or the Roman authorities, neither of which liked Jesus at all or anything he stood for, why didn't they just simply get his body and parade it around the city? That's your savior, guys. There he is. That would shut this whole thing down immediately. But they didn't do that because they couldn't do that because Jesus was really and truly resurrected. Did the resurrection happen? Yes. Question two. Why does the resurrection matter? Why does the resurrection matter? Paul now turns to address those in the church who are saying that there is no resurrection. And pay attention because if despite what we've already covered, if you still think that Tom guy, this, this guest preacher back from a sabbatical or whatever, like if you, you, I don't want to listen to him. And, and in fact, I think it's really wrong and I want to destroy Christianity. Okay, here's how. Ready? Let's pick up to verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how could some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, which he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. He's so clear here. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've, they've perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So there it is, right there in verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. So if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then I'm wasting my time standing up here, and you're wasting all your time sitting right there. That's what that's saying. Stop coming to church. Stop reading your Bibles. Stop praying. Stop telling people that Jesus saved you. Because he didn't. Maybe maybe he tried, but according to verse 17, if, G, or, or if Christ had not been raised, your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. That means you are not right with God. That means you are not forgiven. That means that you are not his children. He is not your heavenly father. No, you're his enemies. God almighty maker of heaven and earth who spoke galaxies into existence and whose sovereign will causes the very molecules of our bodies to hold together and who causes the sun to rise and set each and every day. This God is opposed to you because in your sin, you are opposed to him. And after, after this two-second slice of reality is gone. It's passing here on earth. You're going to die. And you're not going to enter his heaven where God would personally shelter you and love you and, and forever wipe away your tears. No! You'll spend all eternity forever and ever separated from him and separated from all blessing and goodness and safety and peace. And you, you, you will have no hope of that ever, ever changing. And that is not only true for you, but for all those who have lived 
and died from the beginning of time until now. And it will be true for all who come after you from now until the end of time. And that's why Paul writes in verse 19 that if we have, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Because this is it. This, this is as good as it gets right here. This is the best your life will ever be right now, today. And it's only downhill from here. Sorry. Do you see, friends, why Paul is so utterly shocked that people would think they gain something by saying that there is no resurrection? Why do you think people do that? Maybe, maybe ignorance? Like maybe, maybe they really don't think it happened. Maybe that, that's why Paul lists all these people they could go and talk to, right? But I think for many people, and this is almost certainly true of the Corinthian church, it's not ignorance, but preference. They want this to be all there is. Because if we keep our eyes on this world right here, right now, then that allows us the luxury of doing whatever we want. We get to be in charge. We get to make the rules. We get to be God. And if you're, if you're familiar with the bigger picture and the storyline of the whole Bible, you know that it's not at all, that that's not at all a new idea. If you, you, like, think about back in Genesis, Adam and Eve, the first people, it was this desire to be God that led them to sin in the first place. And look what it got them. They became, of all creatures, most to be pitied. Do you really want to follow in those footsteps? But I think there's another reason that people reject the resurrection too. It's because they imagine that life after resurrection isn't going to look much different than this life. Like, like frankly, their, their, their lives right now are kind of, you know, mediocre. They're pretty good. They're all right. We have good days. We have bad days, whatever. And like, maybe heaven will be like more weekend, less week. Like, that's, that's kind of the, the mindset we get. Or, or maybe they even think, like, we're going to be worse off. Because, like, after we're resurrected, like, we, we, we've, we've seen these movies and, and we, we've maybe even sung some songs that pictures eternity with God as, like, sitting around with harps and sitting on clouds and, like, singing Gregorian chant or something. Right? Like, that's kind of what we picture. And honestly, that's what I thought. Even for years after becoming a Christian, that's what I thought eternity would look like. But I'm very pleased to tell you that view is altogether incorrect. And let's see what Paul has to say about that. Right here, we're going to jump ahead to verse 35. This is the next point on your outline. Verse 35, I'm going to read almost through the end of the chapter. There's a lot to take in here. There's a lot of detail. Don't get overwhelmed by it. But just listen, and I'll, and I'll explain what, what, what's happening here. So starting in verse 35, we're going to read 43 here. But someone will ask... How are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you, what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars, for star differ from star in glory. 
So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness is raised in power. Okay, let's just jump ahead a little bit here for the sake of time. Verse 50. Pick up at verse 50. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must, on, must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on, the, uh, puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. I'm going to pause right there. There's still a good ending to this, but I have a fourth point. So this is my third point. All right. Here's my illustration, which you can probably, probably barely see. I have an apple seed. You have to... <laughs> great. Thanks, Joe. Okay. We all know that even a tiny little apple seed like this has within it the potential to become an enormous apple tree that bears fruit, sweet, juicy, delicious fruit year after year after year, right? But have you ever stopped and considered just how strange that is? Like if you were to carefully examine this little brown seed, which I just dropped, it's okay, I have a backup seed in my pocket. You'll quickly determine that a seed like this has absolutely nothing to do with its future form. There's like nothing in common. Like consider a full-grown apple tree. Picture the, the, the thick brown wood and the sprawling branches and the, the, the crispy fruit. You can just picture that, right? We have a couple apple trees that are just baby ones growing in our yard and we're already imagining these things. But could you take this and cut it down and heat your home with it? No. Could you like install a treehouse on this thing? Could you sit under its shade and read a book on a beautiful summer's day. No, no, of course not. And yet if we put this seed in the ground and it ceases to be, all of those things become possible. That amazing multi-purpose tree is resurrected from the death of this tiny seed. Now, can you imagine... If I uh, were to find my other little buddy seed here, and they're all like hanging out inside an apple one day, and one seed says to the other, you know what? I think when we die, we're going to come back as like better seeds, but like seeds that sit on clouds and sing Gregorian chant. <laughs> that would be ridiculous, right? And I, I, know it's, I know it's a ridiculous analogy. I understand. Seeds don't actually do that to the best of my knowledge, but... It would be an even more ridiculous assumption on the part of that seed, wouldn't it? Like that seed would have no idea how glorious it was going to be. How all of that amazing stuff would become true. And friends, Paul is saying here in this text that we're just like that. We're just like that. Do you see? Did you see how many times the word glory appeared in just verses 40 through 43 alone? Seven times. 
Paul is simply blown away by it. And this is how he concludes. This is starting partway through verse 42. Look, he says, what is sown, what's put in the ground there, is perishable. What is raised, what is resurrected, is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It is raised in power. My friends, in the resurrection, you are not going to be bored like you're sitting on clouds and strumming a harp and wondering what the next song is. That's not what's happening. You are not going to be disappointed. You are not going to be dishonored or weak. You're not even going to be this. You are going to be glorious. That's the promise. You are going to be glorious. And you're going to be as gloriously different from all of this as this little apple seed is different from that tree. Now, you probably noticed also that Paul spends a good bit of time talking about the perishable and the imperishable. Why does he do that? What's he talking about? Like, why does that matter? Well, here's my proposed answer. I'm going to give you the answer and I'll explain why. My answer is that it's a question of who wins. It's a question of who wins. Here's what I mean. Okay, some of you here are sports fans. And if you're not, that's okay. I'll explain. There are these things called sports teams. Okay? And... Uh, every year, these sports teams compete, and people come from, like, all over the place to come and watch them compete, and people, like, hit each other and throw balls and things like that, and, and they get really into it, and they spend a lot of money and a lot of time, and they love it, and so these sports teams, they play game after game after game, and eventually, the two best teams compete against one another, right, and... And, and one of those teams will go home that day knowing that they and they alone are the very best team in the world. They are the champions. And sometimes, sometimes, that, that, that best team is so good that they go the entire season, everybody they've played, undefeated. Whew. Now that's glorious, right? That's like, that's like even when the non-fans go out and buy the shirts. Like, it's, there's glory in that. That team clearly has the power and they have the authority and they have the track record to declare that they are the undisputed champions. With me so far? Okay. Now, in a sports context, while the venerable distinction of being undefeated is indeed glorious, everyone knows that even a record like that will last at maximum a few years if they're really good. But... Eventually, they don't win anymore. My friends, there is something around you all right now that has a better track record than even the most, the greatest sports team of all time. And that thing is death. Since the moment death entered the scene back in Genesis 3, it has never lost Every person who has ever gone toe-to-toe with death has been utterly defeated, no matter how well they ate or how much they worked out. It doesn't matter if they were rich or poor or kind or nasty or wildly famous or utterly unknown. Every one of them died because death never loses. Except once. And that was in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so death had a pretty good record going. And Jesus blew it away. And my friends, not only is death's flawless record ruined, it is more than ruined. 
Because what Paul is saying here in this text is that at that last trumpet, in the blink of an eye, every person who is trusted as in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, whether dead for millennia or is alive as you and I are right now, every one of them will be raised imperishable. When that happens, this is verse 53, when that happens, these perishable bodies that are susceptible to death and decay and sickness and all this other stuff will put on the imperishable over which death has absolutely no power whatsoever. This mortal body, Paul says, will become immortal and death will never be able to lay a finger against it. So not only did Jesus deliver the first ever blow to death's perfect record, but because of Jesus and our unity in him, death will never win again. (laughs) And death's loss of power is going to be so complete, so utterly and absolutely complete, that we're going to sing songs of mockery over it. You undisputed champion, you're nothing now. We're going to sing, death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? Yes, you may steal our lives, whether by old age or cancer or coronavirus or crucifixion, but you have been defanged. You may claim to have stolen the lives of our friends and our family and our parents and, and, and sometimes even our children. And we mourn them. For this is not the way God intended things to be. But for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, someday soon, those who are stolen from us, they, they will rise up and we will join them in that glorious song. Oh, death, where is your sting? That is what the resurrection is like, friends. That's what it's like. It's more glorious than we can even imagine. And because death is defeated, it will never end. All right, last point. How should this affect us today? Like, what does this matter right now? How, how should this affect us today? Well, we began our time by observing that if Jesus was not raised from the dead, then we... Christians, we who are Christians here, are of all people's most to be pitied. But we've seen that Jesus has been raised. And so we Christians are of all people's most to be envied. But the thing is, we Christians also know there is nothing inherently in us that is enviable. Like, we're we're nothing special. We didn't do anything to earn this coming victory over death, but we have trusted in the only one who did. Verse 57 says this. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. How? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is very, very important to recognize because, because for Christians, death's sting is removed. And, and yes, unless Christ returns first, you still will die. But because of Jesus, death has become simply the gateway to victorious immortality. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, if you, if you do not call him your Lord, your Savior, if he is not the centerpiece of your life, then, then that victory is not yours to claim. It belongs only to Jesus and mercifully to all of those who believe in him. But here's the good news. He's ready to receive you if you're ready to receive him. And and just think about that for a second. 
Like, no undisputed world championship team would ever let some nobody walk off, walk out of the stands and, and like stand up there with them as they receive the trophy and say, yeah, you can share in this. I'll give you, you're part of this. You get, you get the cash prize, you get the shirts, you get the honor, you get the ring, you get all that. But that's exactly what Jesus offers us. If you'd like to gain access into that victory, all you need to do is ask. Just believe the words that Paul wrote. Believe these things we've been talking about. And it's yours. All of it. And I would love to talk to you about how to do that before you leave these doors today. Easter is a wonderful day to begin new life. But first, let me speak briefly to those here who are Christians. And that's because Paul writes verse 58, our last verse here, very specifically to you. He says this, my beloved brothers and and sisters too, my beloved brothers and sisters, he says, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Okay. Like there's like half a dozen sermons in that line alone, but let me encourage you to hear clearly this final exhortation that Paul is giving us. I would summarize it like this. Don't give up. Don't give up, no matter what is weighing you down right now. And, and Allie and I have only been back officially this week, but even the past month of, of talking to you guys, we're already becoming aware of there's just so much weightiness and suffering and difficulty and fear. Uh, and, and, and so whether, whether you're struggling in your marriage, with your children, with your singleness, with your job, with your dreams, brothers and sisters, because of the resurrection of Jesus, don't give up. Instead, be steadfast and immovable. Continue abounding in the work of the Lord, loving other people, telling them about Jesus. Invite them to join you here at Grace Fellowship to hear this good news on Sunday mornings. Read your Bibles, serve your neighbors however you can, honor and pray for the, 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 the authorities God has set over us, and so on. Why? Like, why continue to do those things if nothing feels like it's changing? Because in your victorious, risen Lord, Jesus Christ, we are assured here by a resurrection promise that your labor is not in vain. He has a purpose for you, friends. He has a purpose for all your labors in him, and these labors are not in vain. He will accomplish what he intends in your life and through your life, both now when you're mortal and one day very soon. When you're not, let's pray. Oh Lord, it's so humbling to know that through no merit of our own, through no participation of our own, you welcome us up to be victorious with you. And this isn't our effort for a season. This will never come to an end. This is just the beginning. God, millennium from now, 10,000 years, 10 million years, 100 billion years, whatever, we will look back and think, remember that quick breath that we called our mortal existence? Do you remember the power that sin over had over us and how Christ defeated it? Let's sing again. Let's enjoy this forever victory, this incredible joy, this apple tree existence in Christ. 
And Jesus, would you cause us to look forward to that day even now as we sing? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.